0: Hello and welcome back to another edition of the NAMT radio show. I'm your host Rob Lawrence and uh, it's time to get a little bit clinical and uh, we've already had Dr. Kupas on and uh, so now we've done one, we have to do the
1: other one. So welcome to NAMT radio, Dr. Jeff Jarvis. Rob, thank you. Always great to sit down and talk with you. It's uh, You didn't tell me I was going to be following the Dr. Kupas. So now I feel like I just have to like bring my A game for you cuz he's just so good.
0: Yeah, we have some obligations. We have to mention Cooper's and Tegman at least once in every show I do. I believe and, you're right. And Zavadsky. So yes. those three are always mentioned. Now, we're uh, unusually when I do an uh, MT radio so far it's either been over a Zoom call or over mm-hmm. Zencaster call, but I'm actually looking at you. You are real. Exactly.
1: Tell everybody exactly. where we are. Exactly. We are in the Prodigy Studio um, at the Hard Rock Casino and Resort Seminole, Hard Rock. We're in Florida, Hollywood, Florida, for the Eagles Conference. And this is a Seminole event in it Seminole. Is.
0: And uh, yes, so we are here at the Gathering of Eagles. Uh, it's the Metropolitan Medical Directors Conference. Some of you may not have heard of uh, the Gathering of Eagles. Oh my. So, Dr. Jarvis, what is it? Is it possible that someone has not heard? There's the one person I listening, guess so. I, I'm well,
1: sure to give you an idea this is something that uh, Dr. Paul Pepe and Dr. Uh, Ray Fowler started a long time ago and the idea was long before I was involved and the idea was to get the medical directors from the largest municipal EMS agencies in the country to get together because his assumption was we are all facing common problems. Let's get together, and say, hey, here is the um, the bee in my bonnet. What is what's yours, and what is your solution for my bee? I may have a solution for yours. And since then, it has grown and grown. Um, it now brings in a lot of our federal partners and our international partners. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Fiona Moore was here. She's always fun to talk to. Uh, we have folks from. Let me jump in
0: there. I, that's, that's one for England. Uh, of course, for those that are listening uh, overseas, particularly in the UK, will remember very fondly that uh, mm-hmm. Dr. Fiona Moore was the medical director of the London Ambulance Service for for many years, and uh, she's been uh, an attendee. At e- I, I'm, this is my fourteenth Eagles, Jeff. Can you believe my. that? Um, and so I've seen her every time, and
1: uh, we go back beyond that into the UK. So thank you. Name drop. Absolutely, check. she is. Um, I'm sure she did a wonderful job at LAS. Yes. <laughs> Um, but what I really know most about her is just what a wonderful human being she is. She's so she nice. Absolutely is. Very and kind. so we've used
0: its, its, its full name, the Metropolitan Medical Directors. It's known colloquially mm-hmm. as the Gathering of Eagles because right. back in the day, and, and Dr. Pepe uh, will tell this story, and I love hearing it about uh, how when a journalist came in and saw all of the collection of eminent, um, you know, pre-hospital medical professionals sitting there, said this is like a gathering of eagles, and the name stuck. And so here we are. And Paul the, said. So Sold. (laughs) Sold. It was (laughs) indeed sold. So let's take. Sorry, let me rewind. The purpose of this show, therefore, Mm -hmm. is to talk about some of the some of the clinical topics, some of the clinical subjects that are being discussed here at uh, Eagles. Some say that uh, if it happens here, eventually potentially becomes practice, possibly
1: best practice, certainly food for thoughts
0: in EMS systems across the country, nay, across the world. Would you agree
1: with that? Absolutely. And I think even if something does not pan out, if there is something that is being discussed from a clinical perspective, it will definitely be discussed. Here at Eagles. And I think that is one of the best parts about this, as with any conference, is you get to see friends and colleagues. I get to see my buddy Rob. Um, and we get to talk about things that is, are facing all of us for, um, you know, example whether it's whole blood or a new device for doing CPR. If there is interest in it, it will be discussed here, and it will be discussed primarily around what are the clinical aspects, what does the evidence say. So it's uh, those are exactly the types of conversations I like. This is one of the highest yield conferences of the year. Indeed, and before I sort of give you the mic and ask you to give us some of your
0: sort of thoughts and takeaways, mm. the way that this conference is set up, I think Eagles was doing TED before TED was even born. So let me set, for you listening, let me set set the scene for you. Unlike other conferences that we go to where there is a choice of breakouts, there's 15 different classes, that's all starting at 10 o'clock, This is 2,000 of your closest friends in the same room, all looking at the stage, and thanks to the good guidance of our friend Dr. Pepe, uh, the medical directors and groups thereof have no more than five to seven minutes to deliver the topic. I personally think that's great because what it means is that there's no major introductions. We know who you are, you get on, you give us the science and you get off, and therefore we can cram a lot in that's the kind of setup, and so we've had a lot crammed in already. And 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 for full disclosure, we're only at the end of day one, exactly, and we're probably exactly. overloaded. So why don't yeah. I
1: give you the mic and give us your takeaways, uh, Jeff. Absolutely, I will say, from a speaker perspective, the hardest lecture that I have ever given was an Eagles lecture. <laughs> I had to take he, uh, Paul and uh, and Peter, Dr. Peter Antevi, asked me to talk about DSI. And what I had done? Well, I've been going around the country giving a forty-five to ninety-minute lecture, and I got three minutes to discuss it. It was by far the hardest lecture. I got I'd to ever tell night. you, and I, and
0: I do this on on my escalator series. You, yeah, you—it's very difficult to be succinct. But of course, nowadays we consume our information in very small, bite-sized chunks, and therefore, I think you know. Yes, and I'm glad it's tough for you because, of course, you've mm-hmm. got to find the right words, the right, right the right. Uh, you know, takeaways, the right pearls yeah. in that time, and so it must be a challenge. But actually, you guys, by goodness, you guys
1: do a great job. It is the defluffification of lectures. I'm so not sure it-
0: we're allowed to say that on NAMT Radio. <laughs> uh, please
1: leave your comments in
0: the, uh, in, the in the notes uh,
1: in the, on the platform that you listen correct, to. Correct, correct. And my name is Dr. Doug Cooper. For any complaints, the. Yet fluff is in all the extra stuff that you don't really need to know. What are the yes, takeaway indeed. things? And speaking of takeaways, you ask me what my takeaways for this conference.
0: Yeah, been. and I'd love to really just ha- hand over the floor to you. Obviously, sure. we, we have discussed these because, of course, we've all got our great our favourites. But uh, you know, let's 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 have the Dr. Jarvis top takeaways. And I say so far because we are only at the end of day one. Um, if only we could have done this in twenty four hours time. Indeed, but. We've got enough to talk about. Over to you, sir.
1: <laughs> well, I'll tell you, one of the things, as usual, that I love about Eagles or an ASEP conference or MSP is I get to listen to outstanding lectures. One of my heroes in terms of education and communicating science is Dr. Clary Slovis. Um, he is amazing. He is known for giving his top five lectures. And he hits on the really impactful studies and does it very rapidly. So Rob, you probably know I am a big fan of the Paramedic 2 study that was done in the UK comparing epinephrine to placebo. The reason I like the paper, other than how well written it was, plus they threw in a Bayesian analysis, which is really just nerd candy. It said, hey, you know what, epinephrine improves ROSC, it improves short term survival, but of those people who survive it doubles the amount of neurologic devastation. Some epi seems to be good, but maybe not the amount of epi that we're giving now. So, the standard has been one milligram every three to five minutes of one to ten thousand. Well, Cory presented a study called One and Done Epinephrine, and this was also done in the UK. And what they compared was three groups, placebo versus one milligram every three to five minutes, versus one milligram and you are done, no more epinephrine. And what they found not surprisingly is the more epinephrine you got, the more ROSC you got, which we might be tempted to think is a good thing, but the thing patients care about is neurologically intact survival. Are they able to go back to their prior version of life, their prior quality of life, or are they pegged and trached on dialysis in a nursing home. Nobody wants that. And what they found here is the one and done epinephrine had higher neurologically intact survival. Really, really important. It's it's not a it's not the clear evidence, but boy, is it a strong signal and it is really telling us that we need to study this more. We need another paramedic, maybe this would be paramedic three. The thing that I would like to see is them add another arm for an epibolus followed by an epi infusion. So great, great study there. He also talked about a paper that was published yesterday in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was the patch trial about TXA pre-hospitally. And depending on your perspective perhaps some disappointing results. Their primary outcome was survival, neurologically intact survival at six months and they didn't show a difference. Now this is fascinating because they did show short-term survival with TXA, but then again very much like paramedic two they showed worse neurologic outcomes in those people who survived. And as a matter of fact the visual, data visualization they used, it looked like it could have come straight out of Paramedic too, So that was wonderful. I think I still haven't read it. The paper dropped yesterday. It's a testament to Corey being on the ball. And actually before, we, before you that.
0: carry on, I'll jump in there by yeah. saying we will endeavor to put all of the papers you're talking about mm-hmm. linked into the show notes. Awesome. Uh, and so there'll be a chance if you're listening to visit the show notes, uh, visit uh, the NAMT, and actually read some of the stuff that we're talking about. So we will make every effort to, uh, to stick everything in the show notes. So do carry on.
1: Well, if you don't mind a, speaking of the studies and the papers, if you don't mind a blatantly self-serving reference. Over um, to you. I can absolutely promise you I am going to be covering both of these trials in a future episode of the MS Lighthouse Project podcast where I dive into the literature on this. Excellent. One more reason that Dr. Slovis is my hero. Uh, Dr. Kimberly Pruitt, the Medical Director for Albuquerque, she's also the State Medical Director for New Mexico, Presented a topic that is really, really interesting. It stimulated a lot of discussion at Eagle Creek. She wrote a protocol for traumatic cardiac arrest, or as Dr. Pepe has been pounding into our heads, traumatic circulatory arrest, that says don't do compressions. Now, if anybody were to suggest not to do compressions in cardiac arrest, the initial response. For most people, is you go straight in case, to jail.
0: In case you out there spat your coffee out, we're talking about traumatic Correct. cardiac arrest. Let's Correct. just get that out there.
1: And to be clear about this, this is the reason that Dr. Pepe wants to make a distinction. Right. He his distinction, which I actually think is very good, is cardiac arrest is primarily a medical issue. Traumatic circulatory arrest is different. Uh, and in, if you think about this. The reason you go into cardiac arrest from trauma is not because you have an occluded left anterior descending artery putting you into ventricular fibrillation. No, the reason you went is you disrupted your pulmonary arteries, you have a tension pneumothorax, you have a pericardial tamponade, your airway is obstructed by blood. Doing CPR doesn't, or of course, your last red blood cell just ran out onto the pavement. CPR doesn't improve any of those things. It can distract you from doing the things that work. What I affectionately refer to as a three-hole punch, bilateral finger thoracostomy and a pericardiocentesis, opening the airway, suctioning, ventilating, and if you happen to be like our colleagues in San Antonio and have whole blood, perhaps consider that. CPR just delays that. Now, an important point about this, Dr. Calhoun made this point, was that we need to be careful and understand not all traumatic circulatory arrest is the same. For example, you might have been, say, watching an American football game, if you could stomach that. Thank you for that. I'm glad you qualified that. I did, I did. And watched someone get hit in the chest and go into cardiac arrest. They obviously did CPR. They successfully resuscitated him. That was commotion cortis. Yes, it was traumatic. But it put him into VFIB, and needed to be treated like a medical arrest. So not all traumatic arrest is traumatic arrest, which is really their point.
0: Right. That was a precordial tackle then.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting because yeah, right. I
0: watched that over and over, and
1: I and didn't despite see it, it being American football, I uh, did see that. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I have been watching some Premier League. Yes. Good. Manchester United. Ah. And uh, Ted Lasso, of course. Which, of course, is absolutely real. Yes, anyway. Completely real. Like, I would know the difference. (laughs) So that concept of no compressions in CPR is good. So I I really like that. It's something that I have been considering doing. And to be perfectly honest, I'm not brave enough. Um, Because I am worried that traumatic arrests occur in public. And every Tom, Dick, and Harry now has... A cell phone, and I just don't really want to be explaining why we're not doing CPR on the network news. So that was my thing, but Dr. Pruitt, thank you for taking one for the team. She went first, she's absolutely right. I think the more of us do this, the more (coughs) accepted it will be, and the more we can focus on doing the things that the patients need to improve.
0: And actually that's, again, I sort of come back to restate one of the things I think we said at the start is that uh, the short, sharp nature of this really does just raise your interest. Mm-hmm. And then obviously there are studies, there are experts, there sure. are those trailblazers yeah. that you can refer to. And uh, your your medical director, if you're listening, will know uh, certainly Dr. Jarvis, Dr. Cooper, and we'll be able to hopefully put you in touch if you want to hear mm-hmm. more about this particular science, uh, yeah. etc. Over three decades ago, PHTLS pre-hospital trauma life support transformed the assessment and management of trauma patients in the field, improving quality of trauma patient care and saving lives around the world. The 10th edition of this trusted, comprehensive resource continues the PHTLS mission to promote excellence in trauma patient management by all pre-hospital care practitioners through global education. In the field Seconds Count, the 10th edition of PHTLS Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support teaches and reinforces the principles of rapidly assessing a trauma patient using an orderly approach, immediately treating life-threatening problems as they are identified and minimising delays in initiating transport to an appropriate destination. To order your copy today, visit psglearning.com or follow the link in the show notes. Don't forget if you like what you're listening to please take a moment to rate and review us on the platform that you're listening to us on plus if you pick up your iPhone right now and look at it on the podcast platform you're looking at if you'll see there's a little plus sign or a little check mark if you hit that what it means is you've liked and subscribed and then every time an episode drops you get a nice notification that we're back on your airwaves, that's the mid-show plug from me. Um, I'm with, uh, of course, Dr. Jeff Jarvis. We are here at the Gathering of Eagles, uh, the Metropolitan Medical Directors, and uh, I so rudely interrupted you uh, giving us your uh, your top your, your top y- takeaways. Do carry on again. Podcaster's got a plug. I we have with to you. plug. Plugging
1: plug our us. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yes, we need a, we need a like a large animal mascot. So we heard a case study. Typically, what we're hearing is science at these meetings, Um, but occasionally we hear truly inspiring case studies. And we heard one of these about an unfortunate young woman uh, who was involved in a motor vehicle collision, 17 years old at the time, um, who had a classic epidural hematoma, right? She, um, I believe, she initially lost consciousness, she regained consciousness, was able to call her mom and say she's fine went to a friend's house and then rapidly lost consciousness as you would expect from a rapidly accumulating uh, hematoma. So they went to a small regional hospital in New Hampshire and the CT came back. This poor woman was unconscious. She got intubated, got a CAT scan and showed a large epidural hematoma. The doctor who was actually here and was explaining what he did, diagnosed her with a large epidural hematoma. He tried to get her out. It was snowing as it does in New Hampshire. He wasn't able to rapidly get her out. He knew that if he did not evacuate that hematoma she was going to die. He talked to a neurosurgeon on FaceTime and they walked him through how to do um, a uh, craniostomy, how to make a hole in this woman's head. And the thing that was so cool about it is that he used an EZIO. Now, to be clear, as I saw the Teleflex folks earlier, not FDA approved, for the love of all that is holy, don't go do this. But that was some incredible improvisation and it absolutely saved her life. So, the really cool part about it, he showed the images and we had Dr. Mark Wilson, a neurosurgeon from the UK who came, also of Good Sam, who came and. Told and us the, all sorts and of and things. And for those about listening, and these.
0: the Sussex Air Ambulance as well. We ah, must, we must yep. give them a, them a plug too.
1: And a very nice guy. So he walked us through some of the neurosurgery, and that was great. But the really cool thing is they invited the patient up. So that was a rather touching moment. This is one of these moments where there are very few dry eyes in the house. Um, that was awesome. That was a top thing for me. So My colleagues and my really good friends, Dave Miramontes and C.J. Winkler from San Antonio, I think most of our listeners hopefully have heard of the incredible work they're doing in San Antonio, the San Antonio Fire Department, and the South Texas Regional Advisory Committee around the use of whole blood. They've truly revolutionized EMS care of trauma patients and hemorrhagic medical patients. So, there was lots and lots of discussion about implementing whole blood, logistic challenges, what the science is. So, that's always a hot topic, and they've been doing an amazing job. If you happen to be in a system that is considering implementing whole blood, number one, good job. Number two, you're going to find that there are massive logistical impediments. Go to the whole blood academy, this is a thing. In San Antonio, the STRAC, their region, puts on this academy. I've been through it and just came away saying, I'm just going to copy and paste everything. Um, And that's exactly how I learned to uh, put in motion whole blood at the system I just came from and what I'll be doing at the system. Sorry right I'm
0: smiling, you said copy and paste of course, you medical directors use the term R&D, don't Correct. you? Correct. What does that Correct.
1: mean? Rip off and duplicate.
0: Right, if it's it's being done out there, by all men I'm sure there's absolutely no problem with uh, following uh, other systems right. and clinical protocols and practices, providing of course you have the appropriate clearance and
1: permission to do so. Of course, yes. So that was a great, great discussion. Um, Boy, I'll tell you, a lot, a lot of discussion about Head Up CPR and Eligard. I will tell you I'm a skeptic. I'm a nerd. Hell, I host a podcast about evidence-based medicine and evaluating the evidence. I am not convinced yet that the evidence is conclusive. I'm not sure the evidence suggests this is really ready for prime time. But I seem to be in the minority. Um, A lot of discussion about this concept. Physiologically it makes perfect sense. One of the reasons that perhaps we're really good at saving the heart and not the brain is because of venous, cerebral venous congestion. And perhaps if you elevate the head you're able to perfuse the brain better because you're draining the blood out of the brain. Makes great physiologic sense. Um, There are plenty of reasons in aerospace engineering why butterflies and bumblebees can't fly. Have you seen a bumblebee fly? No but I saw a butterfly flap its wings in
0: the Himalayas once.
1: Causing a butterfly to fly in North Africa. There we go. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes great physiology doesn't really manifest well in clinical practice. The what I will call provisional and emerging data looks pretty good. So it is exciting. Um, I want more information because I'm a nerd. Um, It's a commercial device in order to purchase it. um, Boy, that's going to be a lot of money. And the evidence right now seems to be that it needs to be done very rapidly. So on your first response vehicles, which means buy way more of them. So in order for me to justify an expense like that, I need some really strong evidence. Um, But that's just me. That's my take on it. I really look forward to um, seeing more evidence, and I would really love to see this done in a randomized controlled trial, recognizing the expense and how hard those are. Um, but when you're implementing something like this, I think the level of evidence should be high let 's see the other thing I mentioned was the benefit of conferences like this is you get to interact in the hallways, and every time you do that, you discuss the problems that you 're having right. One of the challenges that I'm dealing with at my system in Fort Worth is we have an awful lot of calls. We did 180,000 calls last year and the call volume is going through the roof and a larger and larger percentage of those are BLS. And what we're seeing is that it is really hard to identify where the acute, time-sensitive, life-threatening emergencies are that we need to get paramedics to rapidly as opposed to the large number of calls That are not time sensitive, don't need an eight minute and 59 uh, second response, and may not need a response with an ambulance at all. Those people, they definitely have needs, and we need to try to meet those needs, but they may not need the same things that the person in cardiac arrest does. And if we're treating everybody with the same hammer, what we're going to do is detract resources away from those people who need it. So, we're trying to identify what the best way to do this is. Um, I was talking with um, Drs. Ju and um, Cabanas about the way that they're going through it. It turns out we're all doing similar things where we're taking our data from the MPDS system. um, And I'm sorry Dr. Dunn in Detroit is doing this also. We're taking our data from MPDS and we're marrying it to our clinical data from our, almost said ECPR, EPCR system and trying to really dig down and to identify those determinants that are associated with a life-threatening emergency so we can get those resources there. So that was great discussion. And, you know, I think that might have been a Freudian slip when I said eCPR instead of ePCR.
0: So are we, are we about to drift into ECMO? We and, are, and indeed. And such topics? Indeed. Then.
1: indeed. Um, so Dr. D'Onofrio um, and her colleagues from San Diego talked about their new ECMO program. Uh, they also talked about some of the evidence that they've seen up the road a bit from Los Angeles. And discussing really if you're going to do this, how to do it, um, and what some of the potential benefits are. So I'm really torn about this. This is also one of the things that I'm fascinated about. I think there is a very clear role for ECMO. Our colleagues in Minneapolis have just been, I mean the data that they publish is almost too good to be true. So we have to find the right patient population. And then once we've done that, we have to identify when the best time to move is. I mean it's a bit of a catch-22 here, it's a, it's a challenging issue. We know that 95% of survivors from sudden cardiac arrest will regain ROSC within the first 15 minutes of a cardiac arrest. And if they're going to regain ROSC, regain pulses, really what they need is really good BLS. Life-saving interventions for cardiac arrest are BLS. What they need is mask ventilation, early defibrillation, and really good minimally interrupted compressions. If you are trying to get rapidly to a hospital for ECMO, you interfere with those things. So I think there is a point when we need to transport. And I th- unlike most cardiac arrest, where if you don't get pulses back on scene, the likelihood of you getting pulses at all is less than 1%. Multiple studies now have shown that. You have higher survival if you work codes on scene. ECMO is probably an exception to that. I just don't know that we have truly refined it to determine which patients and right, when they the, go.
0: The selection. Yeah, I, I've, I've been a fan of ECMO and the reason being is my first 10 years in America were under the great Joe Ornato who was uh, a great proponent of ECMO and then actually was one of the first patients to receive ECMO.
1: I didn't know that. Yes, really?
0: Yes, indeed. Uh, he, wow. He was indeed. In, in fact, we, we quipped after, once we could quip. Right. When everything was fine, he's, he, he, he was.
1: Once you're was, back in quippable times. Once
0: we're back in quippable times um, and he was cerebrally intact, of course, we worked out that he tried every single protocol that he'd signed off on
1: had, had worked <laughs> on just him.
0: Going to give um, it a try. And, and, and as we are quipping, of course, uh, with Joe, of course, as our medical director, he also remembered the things we'd hoped he'd forget.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: There we go. So
1: that, 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 that's I, I'm an ECMO fan because of that. I, you know, the thing <clears throat> I think we have to keep in mind about ECMO is ECMO is not a treatment. Right. ECMO is a bridge to a treatment. Yep. Now I think it's incredibly valuable <clears throat> because let's say we open your artery, that's you know more than likely going to be the big issue. Maybe it's a great big PE, maybe it's something else, but more than likely it's going to be an MI. And if you can just get that artery open, you can get the heart back working well. The challenge is what happens to the brain in the meantime. And ECMO is a bridge to that intervention. Um, We just have to really identify the selection criteria. What I worry about is we know that if I could just hit my transponder and say, beam me up, Scotty, and magically go from the scene to the ER for cannulation or the cath lab for cannulation, then I think this would be a no-brainer. But it's not. And you are probably going, in all likelihood, there will probably be a drop-off in the quality of compressions during transport. And I know everybody says, oh, the Lucas device, it's perfect. The Lucas device is not perfect. It has issues. And it's really hard. It is doable to minimize these interruptions. But it's hard work and I would guess that most people don't do that. Um, they just they take too long to put it on and then the machine migrates down, probably doing great compressions over the liver. Liver's got a lot of blood in it but it's probably not circulating to the yeah. rest of the body well. Um, or going up and including the aortic outflow track and decreasing um, circulation. The bottom line is, is it's hard. You really have to work at it. Um, in an organized system, Probably makes sense, but it's not something to just adopt willingly. You've, you've got to be slick, and
0: uh, uh, no names and no cities and no metropolitan medical directors named here. But uh, we had a, we, there was a discussion in the room where somebody stood up and went, actually, my system has worse outcomes when using mm-hmm. mechanical CPR than actually using pit crew and good old-fashioned yeah. hands-on. Of course, we, we all realized quickly it's about the drill and the speed. And not delaying any CPR sure. in getting that, and, and you've got to work on that. That that's that takes a lot of muscle memory, a lot of practice, yes, and a lot of rehearsal for when when you have that patient in arrest. And actually, then when do you stop? Who's putting the equipment on? Mm-hmm. You know, is it is it a Zoll? Is it a, a, a Lucas? Sure. Whatever you're using, but you've got to be <laughs> proficient. And it's a t- it's a team task.
1: Very much so. So you very kindly did not name nope. um, the person. Who brought this up? I will also not name a system I am very familiar with who had a similar um, result, but we can talk about published peer reviewed literature. Right. Our colleagues, Luis Gonzalez, um, Dr. Hinchey, uh Dr. Escott, Jeff Hayes from Austin EMS. Published their experience with the Lucas. So, when they first put it out, they noticed the exact same thing. Survival dropped. They went into the classroom. They went into the lab to try to identify what the problems were. Um, Dr. Levy's paper had come out from Anchorage demonstrating hey, these are the problems. These are the solutions. Here's how to organize your pit crew to use this effectively. They did lots and lots of training on it, got the use of the device up to where they wanted it. And survival still dropped with it. So, there is published evidence. never been a paper that says it improves survival for the patient. And there is some evidence that even in a system that has optimized all the things that it can decrease survival. Now, notice I said patient survival. If you have to transport a patient, please, for the love of all that's holy, use a mechanical compression device. The life you save may be your own. Wonderful. Well, we're uh, about on time. Would you believe? And uh, I as, would not. I think this with, may be a first.
0: Well, as with all podcasts, we could probably talk for for a long while, um, but uh, we know we've got to get on and do stuff. How can we follow you, keep up with you, and
1: uh, what? When when will NAMT see you next? EMS Expo. EMS Expo in New Orleans, or excuse me, Nollins. Um, it'll be a great week. Um, that is always Expo is always a great show. I, I love going to that. It is done in association with EMT in uh, Um We have the International uh, Trauma Symposium, the World Trauma Symposium, um, Great stuff there, great stuff on trauma management, um, all of the wonderful NAMT courses. Um, I'm a huge fan of those courses. My favorite might be AMLS. I think it's a it's a great class, but all of the trauma stuff is very good. So yeah, Expo. I'll I'll be there. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Dr. Jeff Jarvis, and you can also follow my podcast, the EMS Lighthouse Project podcast, to get your fix of nerdery and science.
0: NAMT is so grateful to have both you and Dr. Cooper sir, as our clinical leads and uh, as the the top of the medical shop. And so thank you for doing that for us. Uh, Yes, we will see you at uh, EMS Expo. Um, We will keep up with you on Twitter. Um, You're doing great stuff down there in uh, in Fort Worth. And as you said, Fort Worth, I'm contractually obliged to use the words Zavadsky for whatever reason, (laughs) just for a random reason. Um, But
1: for the moment, uh, Dr. Jeff Jarvis, thank you so much. Absolutely, Rob, it's a pleasure talking to you as always, and thank you for what you're doing for NAMT Radio. This is a wonderful, wonderful project, strong work.
0: It's an absolute pleasure, and uh... Thanks to uh, the folk at uh, HQNAMT. We've got a ton of great guests coming on lined up. We are publishing about every two weeks uh, just to keep things ticking over. Um, this is about episode nine or ten now, Jeff, so we're going on. Plus specials. We, we do the odd special as well. If there's something you haven't listened to, please look into the back catalogue. Go back and see who we've had in the past. We've had some great topics. We've talked about the amazing uh, Lighthouse uh, Leadership Mentorship Project that's now going great guns. Uh, we've talked about uh, legislation, EMS on the hill some great clinical topics Um, and actually I can tell you we've got some great clinical topics coming up Uh, Dr. Lumber Brown from Stanford is coming on to talk about uh, traumatic brain injury next Ah, looking forward to that one and uh, so there's always something happening here on NAMT radio Uh, don't forget you can follow me on Twitter at UKRobL1 or find me on LinkedIn Uh, that's about enough for now Uh, he was Dr. Jeff Jarvis I've been Rob Lawrence and until next time bye for now Thank mm-hmm. you.